He was the head honcho, the top dog. He had built a kingdom that was like no other. One of the seven wonders of the world. The man in charge of Babylon, a place filled with splendor. The king lived in the lap of luxury with palaces that would rival any modern day mansions. Put them to shame in a kingdom that would make everyone envious. One night, the king had a dream, and this was no ordinary dream. He dreamt of a giant tree, majestic and full of life. This tree provided shelter, food, protection, comfort to everyone that was beneath its branches. But then out of nowhere, a messenger from heaven came to him in a dream, declaring that the tree would be chopped down leaving only a stump. This dream troubled this rich and powerful king, and he desperately wanted to understand it. He consulted with his team of wise advisors, but no one, even the best minds of the time, could figure out what the dream meant. So the king called in the big guns. Daniel, a man known to have a deep connection with God. As the king recounted his dream, Daniel revealed its meaning. The magnificent tree represented the king himself. However, his grandeur, his power, all of it was about to change. The heavenly decree brought with it a divine judgment. It was a warning that the king's pride and arrogance would lead to a humbling fall. The king ignored Daniel's warnings, and the king's pride only grew. Larger and larger. And one day as he was on his palace rooftop gazing down at all the peasants below, gazing down at the splendor and majesty of his kingdom, he exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to be a royal resident by my vast power and for my majestic glory? But as those words left his lips, a voice from the heavens proclaimed that the judgment was now upon him. Suddenly, the king lost his sanity and was driven away from his majestic kingdom. He lost everything, including his mind. For seven years, he wandered in the wilderness, a broken man, living like an animal. The king's name was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar III, and his story is found in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar's story is a dramatic example of how pride prevents us from recognizing who God is and who we are. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord, but be assured he will not go unpunished. Well, this week we're starting a series called The Seven Deadly Sins. Now, sin isn't usually a topic we like to discuss, unless it's the sin of others, of course. 
We're pretty good at pointing out the sin or the evil that we see all around us, but we're often pretty reluctant to look at the evil in our own hearts. And that's where the real danger lies, isn't it? You might remember a passage we read in our last series from James chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. But on the surface, the sins that we're going to look at don't really seem like they're all that deadly. You've got envy, wrath, sloth, lust, gluttony, greed, and pride. Those don't really sound that bad. I mean, where's murder? Or child trafficking? Or stealing? Compared to those, gluttony just seems like, eh, not a big deal. So why are these so deadly? They're deadly because they're the source of all other sins. Jesus made this clear in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We might expect murder to be one of the seven, but Jesus said it's not the act of murder, but the anger that's in our hearts that kills us. We'd expect adultery maybe to make the list, but Jesus said it's the lust in our hearts that leads to death. See, Jesus made it clear when it comes to sin, it's the thought that counts. While we won't find the list of the seven deadly sins in your Bible, we do see them all throughout Scripture. So where did this list come from? Where did this phrase, the seven deadly sins, come from? The origin of the list that we have today, the seven deadly sins, is actually a pretty cool story. In the fourth century, a group of desert fathers, monks as we might say, wanted to leave the trappings of sin and were just overwhelmed with the evil they were experiencing in the world. So they wanted to get away from it all. And so they lived in a community off by themselves, thinking that might keep them away from sin, from the corruption of the world. One of these monks, Evagrius Apontius, recognized that even away from the world, he was still being bombarded by sin. He recognized that all the temptation he faced, all the evil in the world, all stemmed from something within his own heart. And he began to notice some patterns. Now, throughout the years, that list was curated and eventually defined as the seven deadly sins by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Today, we see that the understanding of these sins and how we fall prey to them can help us as we face temptation. I mean, even though we keep inventing new ways to sin, and that's always changing throughout history. The sins themselves are the same ones that people have struggled with all throughout history. Think about this. The first sin Adam and Eve struggled with, we're going to talk about today. And we can find the source of these seven deadly sins, as Mark Clark puts it, in these seven sins that they kill your spiritual potential. See, unfortunately, these seven aren't really seen is all that bad today. I mean, in many ways, we actually sometimes think of them as a joke. If you Google the seven deadly sins, you'll find everything from cartoons uh, to a grisly movie, Seven, which depicts the seven deadly sins as murders. But for the most part, the seven deadly sins and sin in general is not something that we want to talk about or take too seriously. I mean, in researching this series, I came across an article that stated that Gilligan's Island was the story of the seven deadly sins. Gilligan's Island, you remember this? Remember this show? 
Have you heard this theory? According to several sources, the creator and writer of Gilligan's Island said that he based the seven characters in Gilligan's Island on the seven deadly sins. You're going to be thinking about that for the rest of the sermon now this morning, aren't you? I actually thought about teaching through this series using each character, but then my daughter reminded me it wasn't going to work. She said, who's Gilligan? (laughs) Of course, once I read this, uh, I spent a long time diving deep, and there are actually lots of different theories about this. One even states that this whole series, Gilligan's Island, is actually a metaphor for hell, and that Gilligan himself represents Satan. Think about it. He seems innocent enough, harmless. He just wants to have fun, kind of aloof character. And the other characters represent the seven deadly sins. And every time they try to get off the island, somebody keeps them from getting off, doesn't, don't they? It's always Gilligan. Something prevents them from getting off the island. After all, the show is called Gilligan's Island. And also, he always wears a red shirt. I read this on the internet, so it has to be true, right? <laughs> But today we're going to look at the first of the seven deadly sins, pride. And pride is often the first on the list because many believe, and I do as well, that every other sin that we commit stems from this sin. I heard a joke that a man walked through a confession booth and he says to the priest, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. In the last 30 minutes, I've just committed all seven deadly sins. And the priest was stunned. He said, how is that possible? What happened? The man said, well, I was angry and envied my neighbor, so I flirted with his wife. Then I ate all his ice cream in his freezer, and I didn't share it with anyone. I was too lazy to clean it up. The priest said, that's only six of the seven deadly sins. You forgot pride. Oh, no, said the man. I'm really proud of it. See, pride is the one sin that we can easily recognize in everybody else, but we often think we're immune to it. I mean, if you don't think you struggle with pride, you probably do. I wanted to share a way that I deal with pride, but I couldn't think of any. Um, Actually, any that I could feel comfortable sharing with you today. But from the very beginning, we see that pride has been at play in all the sins in the world. The Bible is full of examples of the sin of pride. Adam and Eve demonstrated pride, not only in their desire to be as gods, to knowing good and evil, but also their refusal to accept responsibility for their actions. Pride caused Cain to kill Abel in Genesis chapter 4 for people to ignore Noah's warnings. Pride caused people to desire to build a tower big enough to reach the heavens. Pride was the root of Sarah's decision to give Hagar to Abram in Genesis chapter 16 and for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. All of this happened just in the first couple chapters of the Bible. Pride has been at work in our lives causing death and destruction, broken relationships, and separating us from God. And today I'd like us to look at three things that pride prevents in our lives and then one remedy for this sin. First thing we see is that pride prevents us from seeing God's goodness. Pride prevents us from seeing God's goodness. That's actually the root of the first sin we see played out in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, if you got your Bibles, when you turn there, Genesis 3, verse 1, 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, when we doubt God's goodness, we doubt his sovereignty. And when we doubt God's sovereignty, we doubt his plans, his good plans for our lives. Or for those who aren't even claiming to fall under his plans, Pride prevents us from seeing God at all. Psalm 10.4 says, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Pride is in the way. It's pride that causes us to think that somehow we know better than God. This has been happening throughout history. This happens with us today almost every time we open up Scripture to something that challenges us. We think, ah, that must not me be what God means for me because that doesn't make sense. So we change Scripture to suit us, to say what we think it means or what we want it to mean. There's some challenging things in God's Word, isn't there? What he says about divorce what he says about submission, husbands and wives and to each other. We say, no one's going to tell me what to do. That must have just been something for that time. We see it in how we change God's view of sexuality. Oh, that's archaic. That can't be what God really meant. That doesn't feel right. That's all pride. Pride prevents us from seeing God's goodness. The second thing pride prevents us from is making wise decisions. Author Richard Thaler, a renowned economist, notes that one of the greatest successes are often a prelude to some of our worst failures. He actually studied gamblers in Las Vegas and found that their greatest losses usually follow their greatest wins. Now, the gambler would get a winning streak, thought he was lucky, thought he was a genius at gambling, so he took a huge bet and lost it all. Or sometimes a successful business person would have a string of successes. Maybe they didn't follow normal business practices and they think, those rules don't apply to me. Then comes the downfall. He called this the winner's curse. It's the way that the biggest winners often end up the biggest losers. God said something about this in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 18. Pride comes before destruction, an arrogant spirit before a fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Pride prevents us from making wise decisions. Next, we see that pride prevents us from seeing any wrong in ourselves. Pride prevents us from seeing anything wrong within ourselves. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness 
and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pride prevents us from seeing anything wrong within ourselves. It's pride that causes us to think we're always right. In fact, the story of Jesus nailed to the cross teaches that Christians teaches us Christians that our virtues are not merely the opposite of our vices, but sometimes the road that leads to the worst of our evil. In the book, How to Sin Like a Christian, the author says, Jesus was crucified for the very best of human good reasons, such as peace, justice, doctrinal fidelity, national security, and on and on. We are rarely more murderous than when we are defending some noble idea like freedom or democracy. Pride prevents us from seeing any wrong within ourselves. Pride is what justifies us doing things all throughout history that are unspeakable. In the name of God, even often. See, it's easy for us to recognize pride in others. But how do we recognize pride within ourselves? I found a top 10 list online this week of top 10 ways that we know we may be struggling with sin. See if any, or with with pride. See if any of these resonate with you. Top 10 signs you may be struggling with pride. You don't listen well and people say they don't feel heard. Don't nudge your spouse. You assume you already know something before someone says it. You compare yourselves with others. You like to name drop. You think you're too good to do certain things. You talk about yourself a lot and feel the need to correct people. You don't take constructive criticism very well. Number eight, you feel threatened by people who are better than you. You rarely admit you're wrong or apologize. And number 10, you don't think you struggle with pride. Do you see yourself in any of those? It's easy to see somebody you know, maybe somebody you're sitting next to. But do you see yourself? See, pride doesn't always show itself so easy. I mean, we all have this idea when we think of someone who is proud, maybe we see them post things on Instagram, pictures of themselves, looking how great their life is. But sometimes pride disguises itself as something a little more subtle. See, pride can make one person obnoxious. We call that arrogance. And another person, it can make invisible. See, arrogance and insecurity are both fueled by pride. Arrogance and insecurity are both fueled by pride. It doesn't always look like the grandiose person who says they have it all together. 
Most insecurity stems from self-centeredness in some way. You're insecure because you're not sure you're good enough. You're not sure you're going to do the right thing in the right way. And you're not sure you're going to be perceived in a way that you want to be perceived. Do you hear what's going on there? Where's the focus? It's not on others and how you can love and serve them. It's on the self. It's on how I'm going to look. It's pride. Are you afraid to serve in a ministry because you might fail and not look good? Are you afraid to share your faith with a coworker because of what they might think and how you might feel about yourself after? Are you afraid to pray out loud because of how you might sound? Are you afraid to reach out to someone because they might reject you? If you answer yes to any of these, the problem might be pride. See, pride can be summarized as an attitude of self-sufficiency, of self-importance, and self-exaltation. Or to put it this way, I can do it by myself, I can do it better myself, and I'm going to do it for myself. We see this attitude of by myself, better myself, and for myself in the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking around the top of his roof, looking down in the vast kingdom. And let's read from Daniel 4 what he says. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 29. This is after he had had this dream and been warned that his arrogance, his pride was going to lead to a fall. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the most royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for my majestic glory? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird." Now years go by, and Nebuchadnezzar, too proud to acknowledge that God is in control, lives as a crazy man. But then we're told he looks up to God, and in that exact moment, when he looks up to heaven and acknowledges that God is God, he's restored. Daniel 4.37 says, now Nebuchadnezzar, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar starts off by looking down from his high place, looking down on everyone around him. But it's only when he looks up that he's restored. C.S. Lewis in his great masterpiece, Mere Christianity, has a chapter on pride. It's called The Great Sin. And in it he says this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. 
A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So what's the remedy for pride? It's actually pretty simple. The remedy for pride is humility. Now, we all know those people uh, who fill their posts with how great their lives are or pictures of how good they look. But most of us, when we think of humility, don't think of humility really in the way that God intended it. We've actually perfected the idea of what we call the humble brag, right? How we can appear humble, but we're still living filled with pride. There was a newspaper article written by columnist David Brooks that mocks what passes for humility these days. And he took a tweet uh, as an example. This tweet said, I was humbled to be awarded an honorary degree by the London School of Economics earlier this week. Thank you so much for this prestigious honor. And Brooks notes three rules for what he calls, in his little parody article, fake humility. See if you've ever seen these on the internet, or if maybe you've practiced them yourselves. He says, here's how you can practice false humility. He says, never tweet in about an event, about an event that could actually lead to humility. Never tweet, I'm humbled that I went to the party and nobody noticed me. Never tweet, I'm humbled that I got fired for incompetence. Number two, he says, use the word humbled when the word proud would be much more accurate. For example, truly humbled to be the keynote speaker at the TED conference this week, the key to humility displayed is to use self-effacement as a tool to maximize your self-promotion. Number three, he says, never use a pronoun. Start your tweets with humbled to be or honored to be. This sends the message that you only have a few seconds to dash off this tweet because you're so busy and so important. He closed his article by saying, we used to dance around our humble bragging, but now, he says, our so-called humility is explicit, assertive, direct, and unafraid. We blaze forth so much humility that it's practically blinding. Humility, he calls, the new pride. But God has something different to say about what humility is. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the, opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. I saw an illustration that really helped me understand pride in my own life. Pride is like this flashlight. I'm trying to blind any of you here. We can shine our light anywhere we might want, right? And the way we often look at pride, the arrogant version of that is, I'm going to shine the light on me. Everybody, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at how grand my accomplishments are. I'm so much better than everybody else. This is the Nebuchadnezzar kind of pride, right? But pride, as we looked at a little bit ago, can often be subtle and not quite as overt as look at me. Sometimes it can be, don't look at me. Look over there. Look at them. Look at them over here. Don't look at me because I don't feel worthy enough. Or don't look at me because 
I don't want you to know what's really going on inside. Don't look at me because I care so much what you think. This is wrong, pointing the light at me. And it's wrong pointing it at others. Don't look at me. The only thing we're supposed to do with this light is to point it at Jesus. That our light would shine towards him. That the proudness that we feel would be towards God. He tells us in scripture, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good needs, good deeds and glorify who? Me? No, you? No, our Father in heaven. It's not the great Babylon I have built by my power, by my glory. See, humility isn't looking down on ourselves, but looking up at the Savior. Humility isn't looking down on ourselves or others, but looking up at our Savior. Philippians chapter 2, famous passage that talks about how we can imitate Jesus' humility. Starting in verse 3, says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's this humility that Jesus displayed on the cross. Jesus faced the temptation of pride when Satan tempted him to prove that he was throwing himself from the top of the temple. And he faced the temptation of pride again on the cross when he was taunted to come down off the cross to prove he was the son of God. But he was obedient, it says, even in the face of death, even death on a cross. He killed the deadly sin of pride with humility. I want to ask you to take out your communion elements. And these elements, they represent his body, the bread of life that in humility was given for you. It's a reminder of God's grace a gift that was given to us that we didn't earn and we don't deserve, but was given because of his goodness. And we have the juice, a reminder of his blood that was given for us. Us, people full of pride. Us who often think we can do it better by ourselves, for ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. 
It's a gift of God. That's what grace is. A gift that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve. Not by our works, so that no one can boast. We don't boast in the things we have done. We boast in what Jesus has done. Amen? Let's take the bread and take the juice this morning. Let's take them now to remind us of his body and his blood that was given for us. I want to ask you to do something that might be different for us. Let's close our eyes. If you just take your hands out in front of you and open them up, just symbolically to remind yourself that you come with nothing, but through Christ we have everything, everything we could ever need. That the sin of pride We don't have to try to hold on to the things around us. We can let them go. We don't need to hold on to what people think of us. We don't need to hold on to our desires, what we want out of life. That we can let it go. That we can turn our gaze up to heaven, not looking down on others, even down on ourselves, but up to the only one who can save us by his amazing grace. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the reminder of the example and of the humility that you demonstrated, being in nature God himself, coming down to earth, stepping into our mess that we created, Lord, and making a way for us to have life with you. God, kill pride within us. Kill it, Lord. We partner with you in the Holy Spirit, inviting you in to do that work in our lives. Lord, reveal to us the ways that we live with pride. Not the pride we see in others, but the pride that's within our own heart. The deadly pride, Lord, that leads us to to forget your goodness, to try to live life on our own terms. That pride, Lord, that causes us to not see our own faults, to look down on others, to think we have it all together because oh, we, we know we're, we're Christians. Can't believe how evil things are out there, Lord. Help us to look within our own hearts. Lord, help us to shine our lights, not on ourselves, not away from us so no one will look and see what's really going on within us and our insecurities, but that we would shine our lights on you. God, we thank you for the amazing grace that saves a wretch like me, like us. We thank you for the love and the hope and the faith that we have in you because of what you've done. God, we thank you for the cross and we thank you for making us your children. Lord, help us when we do shine a light for it to be on you, that when the world sees us shining that light, they don't glorify us They glorify you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And the church together said...